Smartcast. Hi, everybody. This is Michael Grover. Thanks for tuning in. Something magical happens when you hand your script over to actors. They bring whole new meaning to the written word, plying into the crevices their own understanding and life experience. Continuing on with the theme of interviews with the people who brought my play to life, I sat down virtually with my Canadian friend, Renee Picard. Renee played Chris Abbott, the last of the Abbots, in the final scene of the play. He brings his girlfriend, Stephanie Wellman, to the lake house and discovers that things between them aren't what he thought. Here's an excerpt from Renee's performance. But she never wanted to make plans. She wanted to go away from me and leave me hanging, never knowing if I would ever see her again. And here it is. It turns out I wasn't just being afraid of losing you. I, I mean her. Like you just said, she wanted to see me only when she wanted to see me. Renee and I go back, way back. We became friends in 1979 when we both lived in Santiago, Chile. The military dictatorship of Augusto Pinochet was in full swing, and there was still fresh blood on the streets from all the people who had gone missing just a few years before. But you wouldn't know it from Renee and me. We partied like a couple of 16-year-olds because, well, because we were a couple of 16-year-olds. If you're listening to this podcast, let me know by sending a text to 617-435-1340. I'll send back either a Curse of the Lake House t-shirt or a very rare Curse of the Lake House hand-painted tote bag while supplies last. Now, on to the interview. All right, so Renee Picard, what is all this I hear that Jean-Luc Picard's grandson is named after you. Actually, Jean-Luc is my great, he is my great, great grandson. That's, that's true. And uh, I don't know how it happened. I, I, have you actually done the math on that? I, I actually haven't. I just referred to him as my great, great grandson out, out of just uh, admiration and uh, fun. Rivalties out of the way. You know, I've known, I, calculated today i had to actually use a calculator for this but i believe that i met you in 1979 correct and that we were very good friends for like eight months before i i was shipped off to boarding school and um and then we almost did not see each other maybe not even once until we went up to do the seattle trip with lisa that's right and yeah. that was like 2019, wasn't it? That was 2018, I think. So that would mean that we had a 39-year gap in our friendship. That was, you know, when, when, when that happened, and we all just literally picked up where we left off. It was like, I hadn't seen you in maybe two years or something like that, it felt like. Really, it was that... We were, we were that close that after almost 40 years, uh, we all sit down and we start laughing and having, and it's just like yesterday we were together. It's amazing to me. One, one, one of the things that, uh, you know, just sort of in deep background, you know, so you and I met in Santiago, Chile. My father yes. was there as a diplomat. Your father was there in, in a mining capacity, right? He was yeah, a- my, my dad was there. Um, uh, the company that he was with here in Canada uh, was selling technology to the uh, Chilean mining companies to obviously 
extract copper faster uh, than they have been doing previously. So he was down here doing uh, negotiations, mine inspection, uh, some geology. Was, was he a geologist? He was a geologist, yeah. But he was also good at business and, and, uh, you know, he worked, we're from Northern, Northern Manitoba. And, you know, my dad worked in the mines until the, all six kids, uh, all six of us were born, me being the youngest. And you, and you, and you all look eerily alike. I, I know it, it's very strange. Well, my brother, Guy, he says, uh, yeah, he, Renee looks like me. And I say, no, he looks like me. But my brother, John, the oldest will always say, you guys all look like me. But yeah, no, we, uh, and dad got the desk job down in, in the main or in the capital city of Manitoba, Winnipeg in 1966. And from there, we just grew up and went to school. And in February 79, dad got this uh, contract to go down to Santiago, Chile for a year. And my brother Guy and I, I was 16. He was 20. He was still living at home. And, and so we both said, yeah, let's go. Let's go party. So, um, yeah. I started going to school at Nido de Aguilas uh, Escuela in Santiago, and that's where I met you. Yeah. And uh, I think it was Mr. Debevoix's class. We were waiting for him to, uh, to come into the classroom. We were all just sitting there chatting, and, and uh, you asked me, the here's verbatim. So, do you party? I even did it with that slight... Canadian twang you've got there? It, it was. So, be a party. Hey, be a party, eh? And so, um, yeah, uh, nine months. That was uh, February 79, and I left in December of 79. For me, that eight months, that nine months that I was there, an unbelievably unforgettable time of my life. I turned 17. I turned 17 years old amongst uh, people from all over the world, meeting new friends. I was from Winnipeg, Manitoba, you know, right on the middle of the prairies. It's like, it's flat. It's, it's so flat. I watched my dog run away for two days. Just the change, the, the climate change, the language that was fascinating to me. Like I already spoke some French. So, so you must've fit right in and Spanish speaking Chile. Uh, you know what Spanish Spanish was, it came really naturally for me. And uh, with all my, my great friends, and we're all, you know, having a great time going to school and partying and stuff. And, um, yeah, learning Spanish was, was uh, one of the things that, that I really am grateful for. Yeah. Is, is that something, have you used that? Oh, claro. You hablo español con mis, well, you know, my, my passengers on my tour bus. You know, whenever I get Latinos or, or French people, I always try to, you know, when we're off the bus, I always try to speak to them in their, in Spanish or French. And yeah, I, I really enjoy it. I still, you know, it's conversational. It certainly can't, can't go into uh, solving the world's problems and deep um, you know, conversation. No, but you, you could order a beer and you can. Uh, oh, I can order a beer and go and ask where the bathroom is. What more do you need? Well, you know, I, I've been I've been back to Chile a few times, uh, twice I think. No, three times. I've been back three times, and um, you know, it, it's so different. Santiago is so different. I mean, there's there's houses going almost all the way up the mountains. I mean, it's just it's just crazy. And that, that area behind Nido. Well, it 
in Barnachea? Houses all up there. Yeah, we used to call it the hills. Because that's all there was out there. These little farms with chickens that like to cross the road and get hit by a car or a bus. Remember that? Why, why did they do that? Oh, boy. There's the loaded question. That is, we could go on for an hour on that one. but I was very surprised in doing research on you to learn your interest in uh, the history of Spanish art. <laughs> and I was wondering if perhaps, you know, you could tell us just a couple of things that you just, you know, maybe you recently learned about Spanish art. Well, uh, a brief glimpse, Michael, uh, would be uh, the years in between, uh, you know, 17, early, early 1700s, because uh, Napoleon invaded in 1802. And there was an artist uh, just about 50 years before that happened. His last name was Goya. Perhaps you've heard of him. He, he was painting very, very dark art because of the, the horrible things that were happening in Spain at the time. It was there were just brutal, brutal murders going on. And, and, uh, and he painted them because he saw all of these things happening and like with his own eyes. And then he would transfer it to canvas. And some of the uh, sketches, just sketches, uh, were really just so dark that they, they could not be published. The, the, they couldn't uh, be you know, sold or anything like that. A lot of them were destroyed. Yeah, no, it's really, this guy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little more research on Goya because his, uh, his life uh, is just incredible artist you know and um uh at the age of what was it 70 or something like that or 65 uh he lost his hearing but that didn't stop him and well you know what it even made his art a little darker because of uh he was more bitter because he has he had lost his hearing but you know like speaking of, of losing hearing um beethoven for example um, who has nothing to do with Spanish art? Whatsoever. Nothing to do with Spanish. So I art. think I think you're backpedaling here, but no, please, no. I, but continue. I think this is a good little uh, addition to to everything that. But uh, Beethoven, like a lot of people, told told uh, Goya that he couldn't paint because of his darkness inside. Beethoven, a lot of people told him told him that uh, he shouldn't compose because he's deaf. Did he listen? Uh, oh no! Wait a second. Did you just did you just slip a joke in there? Did I? I didn't mean I didn't mean to. If I did, and then he said, "But did he listen?" No. Well, of course not. He was deaf. Well, there you go. Exactly. You know. You know what I think that you're really good at. You're really good at the the long game when telling a joke. Because you told me this whole joke, which I didn't realize was a joke until until you delivered the punchline about how you and your brothers used to go out tipping cows. And we proceeded to have this long conversation about cow tipping. And then I finally said the thing you wanted me to say, which was, well, how do you tip a cow? To which you responded, well, it depends on the service. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, we just had like a 10 minute conversation. And I think that the entire time you had that punchline in mind. That was definitely a long game. Sometimes you got to take the long walk. So it's cold where you're from. It's, um, 
cruelly cold in the winter time. You know, we'd be playing hockey at uh, minus 10 Fahrenheit. Wow. We'd be, we'd be outside. Well, of course you were, right? I mean, because you were kids. We were kids and that, and we just bundled up. Mom, we, mom and like she'd have big parka and big mitts and boots and the whole thing. So moving, so, to, moving to Santiago, Chile must have been like moving to the tropics for you. Well, we hopped on a, on a flight, and this is in February of 79. These are in 1979. They smoking, drinking, you know, crazy. And, that, and that's the pilot. And that's the pilot. <laughs> so, yeah, we got off the, we got off the plane and, and felt this uh, incredible warmth. And my brother and I just looked at each other. We were good friends, you know. Yeah, we looked at each other and kind of went, wow, this is, again, surreal. So many surreal moments uh, in, my, in my life in Chile, specifically, really. Um, just situations where you go, am I? I can't believe I'm, I'm in this situation. <laughs> I can't believe that, you know, it's just so bizarre. So you were telling, so one of the things I don't know much about is your uh, stint in the music industry. Uh, in 1990, we'll fast forward a bunch of years. I was, I was, uh, living back in Winnipeg and, uh, driving a cab. I was, I just finished, uh, uh, some time in Calgary as a driving instructor. So I was in Winnipeg and, and, uh, came out to my brother's wedding in 1990 to, to Vancouver, to Vancouver. I was just, this is, this is where I'm going to be. Winnipeg, it's a great place to come from. <laughs> and I thought, what do I really want to do? And, and I said, that's it. I'm going to go uh, take my a course in, in audio engineering. So 10 months later, I have a diploma in audio engineering. I start working, not working, but volunteering my time at recording studios, setting up mics, setting up mic stands, um, you know, going for coffee, going uh, the old gopher thing and just trying to get into the into the music industry and um a friend of mine that was already in with uh, a few different bands said hey we're going on tour and we want uh, we need stagehands come along and i went okay and i had never really done too much uh live events at all and i was hooked again same thing uh, live events the the uh the excitement the uh unpredictability uh, of of live events, just I was I was all in. So that was so that was about 1994. And uh, for the next 20 years, I was uh, sound tech as uh, stage manager, artist liaison, booking agent, volunteer coordinator, festival coordinator, lighting uh, director. Uh, you name it, and I was doing it. And I never really did too much in studio um, after that, other than, than go in and set up some drum kits for, for people that were coming from mostly from LA and, and uh, recording up here with some of the uh, Canadian artists. So yeah, some been in the right place at the right time, a lot of times in my life, but specifically the music industry. Yeah. I, I'm, I've been very fortunate, very, very fortunate to meet some incredible people. So when you, when you when you say live events, you mean concerts, right? Yeah, yeah, rock shows. That took its toll. That's really tough. Pushing road cases along carpeting, man. I'll tell you, 
heavy, heavy road cases and, and the carboning is just building up and building up and things getting heavier and heavier. Oh. Plus, plus you, you were doing the whole thing old school, right? I mean, computers weren't really part of it. Yet. No, no, this is all analog. Everything is analog. And, uh, you know, just, just the main console for a show, a uh, full 48-channel console, weighed about 540 pounds, something like that. And it would be in this giant road case. And uh, it would take six guys. They had three handles on each side. And you'd have to lift that thing. Man, I'll tell you. <laughs> if if people think that uh being a rock and roll um uh sound tech or sound guy or anything like that and life on the road is is great fun it is great fun but holy shit it's a lot it's a ton of work and long long hours you know hopping in the truck after you load the truck and driving to the next town after you just did a show to make it to the next you know the next town the, the one-nighters were the worst brutal you, you'd end up doing 12 in 17 days by the time the it was over just one of them you know you sleep for three days and recover and get up and eat something and then go back to bed and then the last uh last few years was what we call a briefcase gig you walk into a bar and the sound system's already all there and there's a there's a stagehand that knows the play that works there and so he sets up all the drums all the mics all the all, does all the cabling all the everything like that. And you step in, uh, those were really great You walk in and meet the band and, uh, ask them what they want in their monitors, how much of this and that they want in their monitors. And you do a sound check, make them happy and then run the show, operate the show. And then end of the show, you throw on the background music, shake hands and say, see you later, grab your check and go. And someone else does all the heavy lifting. Yeah, like I said, Mike, really lucky, really fortunate to have worked with uh, so many great folks. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is that you actually took you took a, you took a risk to to get that luck, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, I had to take a ten thousand dollars student loan, and I didn't have a job at the time. When it was slow in the music industry for me, then I'd go back to painting houses or or uh, you know doing some landscaping or carpentry or just something like that I, i've always been very very lucky that way where i i've done a lot of things so i can always fall back on on um on pretty much i can do anything mike <laughs> that's the way i feel these days if i went to a city where i didn't know anybody or anything like that i could get a job in about two days that's the way that's how confident i am about <laughs> all this stuff that i've done and that i know how to do um all right so what comes next? In uh, 2009, I was uh, helping out on a show and I hurt my back and quite badly. Uh, through the years, you know, it's just uh, these reoccurring injuries, but this time my back really said, okay, that's it. My girlfriend, then wife, now Rose, she, she said, uh, you know what, Renee, really, that's it. That, that, you know, you're done. I mean, with the music industry, you can't do, you can't do these, these gigs anymore. It's just too much on you. And you, you know, we gotta be, you gotta have you healthy. You're only, you know, 47. I went, yeah, you're right. You're right. So I started looking at, uh, once my back healed up, I uh, started looking at different avenues of maybe some sales. Cause I'm a good salesman and selling myself, you know, for 
so many years. And you don't take returns. I do not take returns. <laughs> and uh, so we were at this party, Rose and I, and we met this woman. Her name is Debbie Reynolds. Not the Debbie Reynolds. No, not the Debbie Reynolds. This woman worked for Tourism Vancouver. Yeah, that's the Debbie Reynolds I'm referring to. Why? Is there another one? Exactly. That's, who's the other one you're talking about? Um, so she, uh, I'm just doing my thing, you know, I'm having a drink and make jokes and being Renee. And, and she said, you would make a really great tour guide. And I said, really? Do you think so? It's actually funny that you say that any, any friends that come into town from Winnipeg or from somewhere else, I always take them around. I always show them around, you know? And she said, oh, no, here, you got to phone this person. And so uh, for eight years, I worked for a company called Land Sea Tours and Adventures. And the first two years, I was uh, a guide. And we do day tours, mostly day tours um, to the uh, capital city, British Columbia, Victoria, on Vancouver Island. That's a full day tour. And then we do a North Shore here in the mountains. We do the city tour. We do five or six tours. We got Whistler and all that. And uh, so for two years, I did that. And then the guy who was the driving coach, the driving you know, instructor, retired. And the boss asked me if, if I wanted to take over since I have the background in, in driver training. And I said, absolutely. Give me that, give me that uh, title and a little more money. It's great. That's what happened. So for six years, I was an instructor and guide. I would you know, teach for a week and guide for a week or you know they'd have have me going in and out i was i wore a lot of hats and then covid hit i was all ready to go in march too it was, it was really devastating because tourism was completely decimated and now i'm looking at rose and rose was in the film industry and that industry was completely decimated so we kind of looked at each other and said well now what so um but the tour guiding to me, uh, I'm back. I'm back doing it now. I'm very, very happy. And uh, working with a company called Discover Canada Tours. That's discovercanadatours.com. And um, I'm an instructor there. I just had a, a good young student just uh, today showing him how to drive a 35-foot bus in, in downtown Vancouver at rush hour. It's, it's great life. I've got a really good work-life balance. I'm working well, just part-time for, for this company. And, and Rose and I also have a, a, a side hustle of uh, treating furniture and area rugs and things like that with a non-toxic stain, stain protector. So, and that's coming along really well. That's microseal.ca. We are keeping busy. We've got uh, doggy daycare here in the house as well. And, uh, and, we take care of dogs as well. We are keeping really, really busy, but um, it's so great to be um, back in tourism. The cruise ships going to Alaska, you know, uh, phenomenal, uh, phenomenal show of people, of support, and a lot of people that were in the hospitality industry that that uh, had to reinvent themselves, much like myself. And uh, during COVID, we kept busy. Rose and I focused on our health. We, we really started uh, taking way better care of ourselves. We have a, our own little exercise area here in my, 
here in my man cave exercise area, saw an, uh, an ad in, on Craigslist. It said, uh, do you like to drive? Do you like to drive? Yes. Do you want to drive a 2019 Mercedes Sprinter van? I said, yes. The guy says, phone me. So I phone him and I said, okay, what am I delivering? And he said, bodies, corpses. Really? Yeah, you go to uh, private residences. And it's not it's not because of COVID. It's just this is just a service that's been provided for many many years. Because if you call, if someone dies in your house, don't bother calling the ambulance because they won't come. It's not their job to take dead people. There are services. There are there are companies that take care of this, and they take them to the morgue. But then I got this uh, chauffeur job, uh, chauffeuring seniors, and these senior citizens uh, just unbelievable i had a year and a half of hanging out with these incredible people their stories just just you know i'd, I'd ask them questions and we'd have so much fun in the car and and uh and they're paying you know upwards of ten thousand dollars a month to live there so um because of that they these fine folks uh, deserve be driven around in a Bentley or a Jaguar or a Rolls Royce. So I got to drive these three awesome cars all the time for a year and a half. They are incredible to drive. The uh, the Jaguar, had, you know, you can go to do uh, like a massage store where they they have got the thing that you put on a chair on the back of a chair and these balls move up and down. You plug it in and right. Yeah, and uh, so the Jaguar had that. You'd have, in the wintertime, heat warmer, seat and back warmer, and the massage. So, I mean, life was pretty good. Yeah, and uh, really nice meal every day. They gave me a nice lunch every day. And, and of course, of course, you can't forget about your big break, that day that I called you and said, hey, will you read this part for me? Yeah, what... Uh, I was Chris Abbott. <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget this. I'll never forget it. When you offered me the, the role of Chris Abbott, I, I just, well, I had to jump at it. It was, no, it was a delight. It was a delight to have you. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for your time. Hey, uh, thanks very much, Mike. Real, real uh, pleasure to, to hang out with you even to just buy vocals our time in chile together was really really special really fun you and i just immediately clicked ever thought about starting your own podcast do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world well now it's easier than ever with electricast hi i'm mark netter and i'm peter rafelson we're the founders of electricast media whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one join electricast to grow your audience monetize your content and build your community with our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electricast. Electricast.